the most bullish observers of WWE would say that it has all the potential that Marvel comic books had decades ago before Disney figured out how to turn that into the most successful box office behemoth we have perhaps ever seen. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, January 25th. Today, I'm joined by Dylan Byers to talk about pro wrestling as media. That's right, WWE is for sale, and as Dylan explains, whoever buys it could be making a huge investment in the future of content. We'll also talk about whether Jeff Bezos would actually sell the Washington Post, or if that's just a rumor. And later, Bill Cohan and Ben Landy deciphered the latest chatter about restarting FTX. Could the disgraced crypto exchange actually relaunch itself out of bankruptcy? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am, I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com dot me slash powers because you're not just investing in better sleep you're creating a better life happy wednesday everybody i'm joined today by dylan byers to dish about the media how you doing dylan i'm doing great peter i want to talk to you about two big one much bigger than the other assets for sale and why it matters <laughs> and one of those assets for sale probably isn't actually for sale but uh, that would be the washington post i'll ask you about that in a second First, I want to talk to you about something that powers the B listeners, puck readers might not normally pay attention to, which is WWE. It's for sale. Can you just explain how big of an asset WWE is? Like, this is like a major entertainment company. Yeah, it really is. And it's this funny thing where, you know, I don't think any journalist would like to admit it, but we are 
you know, we do often cover things based off of our own sort of anecdotal interest in these things. It is why, no, you know, the, what? The, <laughs> like why, for instance, you know, so much ink uh, gets spilled on a show like Succession that very few Americans watch and perhaps less ink gets spilled on Yellowstone, which exactly. every American watches. So. WWE, which I would hazard a guess that no one in in Puck World, maybe all but one or two of of us at Puck, actually watch or pay attention to, is actually this incredible entertainment force juggernaut. And company itself has, uh, I haven't looked recently, but the last time I looked, probably six billion something market cap. And... It is for sale, and Vince McMahon, who you may know from your childhood as, like, the guy who showed up occasionally and got, you know, like, body slammed on the mat, is actually uh, the business leader, the owner, and he has come back, despite some recent scandals, to help facilitate the sale of this asset, and in case you were wondering, well, you know, how appealing is the world of wrestling to a major media company... Uh, how big is the potential audience? Look at the potential suitors. Right now, every media company is taking a look, at least sort of, you know, sort of seeing what it is and what's on offer and, and what the financials look like. The three that I would put at the top of the list as sort of the most likely potential buyers are Comcast, who is an existing mm-hmm. media partner, Disney, believe it or not. And then uh, finally, I would say Endeavor, Ari Emanuel's Endeavor. They obviously bought uh, UFC a few years back, so they already have a big stake in this world of sort of uh, fighting. Now, obviously, wrestling is more is more theater than actual combat, but whatever. Yes. Wrestling to so many of us might just seem like something that is not palatable to some audiences. In fact, as you travel around the country, what you'll find is that wrestling is actually very much a family event. For a lot of people, it is a world made up of heroes and villains with easily followable storylines, characters that you can sort of follow their their respective narrative arcs as they seek their respective title belts. And in this way, the most bullish observers of WWE would say that it has all the potential that Marvel comic books had decades ago before Disney figured out how to turn that into the most successful box office behemoth we have perhaps ever seen. And so there's a feeling, if you are Comcast or Disney, that if you could actually buy the asset outright and own the IP, you could take something that we now think of as being these like specific wrestling events for a sort of middle America audience, and you could blow this thing up with movies and theme park rides and you and and you could leverage certain heroes and villains of the world of wrestling for for better merchandise sales whatnot and that there's actually an immense amount of potential in this business to sort of marvelize the business and at, at a time right now when every media company especially those that are managing declining linear assets is looking for more and more IP that they can outright own that they don't have to rent, uh, WWE becomes a really interesting proposition. How valuable is WWE? Well, again, I mean, it's a it's a question of... It, so it, the market cap, again, is around $6 billion. But 
what is its potential? If you believe that it stops at Friday nights on one channel and Monday nights on another channel and the occasional big pay-per-view SmackDown event, uh, it's probably not much more valuable than than the ticket price right now, than, than that $6 billion or whatever it is. But if you see the potential for turning it into movies and, you know, series, like streaming series and you think you can create a ride or two out of it at Universal Studios or Disneyland, and you you can sort of make it appealing to an even broader audience. Again, do with it what Disney did with Marvel, or at least some some even something like half that strong. Then the va- the potential value of it becomes significantly higher. The timeline here is interesting, and I think that we're probably going to see someone emerge we're gonna I, I think we're gonna see a deal emerge here in the span of the next two to three months all right Dylan, i want to ask you about something else that popped in the news on monday earlier this week this comes on the heels of john and i talking about your reporting on media monday about what bezos was doing at the washington post last week you know there's staff drama there etc the new york post they reported that bezos might sell the washington post as a way to finance or pay for buying the Washington commanders, which again, he's he or him as part of an ownership group are possibly in the market to buy Washington's NFL franchise. It, it looked silly to me at first because it was like, I don't know how much the Washington Post would sell for, but Bezos doesn't need to sell right. the Washington Post to afford to do anything really. <laughs> That's right. You know, he put out a statement afterwards and he's done this a few times, I feel like in recent months saying the Washington Post is not for sale. Is that an accurate statement? Yeah. So the timing of this is actually interesting because last week I did do so much reporting on the Washington Post and Bezos's, you know, surprise visit there. And look, one thing that's really interesting about just how much sort of power and respect someone like Jeff Bezos commands is that the Washington Post is a place of people who gossip and leak and talk all the time about all the internal affairs and drama. And it's a place where, as I have reported, even the executive editor can't help but badmouth the publisher and and perhaps vice versa. All of a sudden, Jeff Bezos shows up and everyone just like tightens up, right? Everyone's like, I, you know, we're not going to, no one, no one wants to talk about what he was there for, what he did or what he said. But I did as much reporting as I could to try and get as close to the heart of like what what is Jeff Bezos thinking? What why was he there? And the one thing I can say for certain, the one takeaway I had is that his visit left people with the impression that he was going to be more not less involved. That he cared about the paper, he was paying attention to all of the drama we've been reporting on over the course of the past 5 or 6 months and he intended to do something about it. So he he gave no one the impression that he had any intention of selling the paper. Moreover, as you point out, it's not as though he needs liquid cash in order to buy a football team. If the if he could buy a football team and the football and the NFL agreed to sell it to him, he could have it tomorrow. So there's so much about that report that just doesn't make any sense and I think unfortunately one of the hard parts about reading you know about like the new york post is occasionally they tap into something in in the space of of, you know new york media or society or whatever that is very real but but that's true half the time and then half the time it's like totally out of nowhere and comes from a source who has no clue what they're talking about and so what i would say to this is that i would be shocked 
based off of all the reporting I did last week, if Jeff Bezos has any intention of, of selling the Washington Post at any point in the near future. I also don't see him as a likely... I think he would love to have the commanders, and I'm not as well dialed into that part of this equation, but I don't know if he's at the top of the list of potential buyers of the commanders either. Hmm. Interesting. All right, Dylan. Well, I'm rooting for it because I want the team of my childhood <laughs> to have as much money as possible to buy a quarterback. <laughs> Thanks for your insights, man. Appreciate it. All right, Peter. Cheers. When we come back, Ben Landy talks to Bill Cohan about the likelihood of an FTX reboot. We're back. I'm Ben Landy here with Bill Cohan to talk about our favorite bankrupt crypto exchange, FTX. Bill, the new CEO of FTX, John Ray, who's overseeing its bankruptcy problem, said the other day that he's considering whether to relaunch the company. You've been an advisor on bankruptcies before when you worked on Wall Street. Did Ray's comment surprise you at all? Uh, no. First of all, it's great to be back here with you again, Ben. It, no, it didn't. It didn't surprise me. Other than, is there anyone actually wanting to do business with this exchange? So, when you're a debtor in possession, you are a debtor in possession of an operating business. So, Bloomingdale's went bankrupt, right? It was sort of like, okay, there's a good business. Everybody knows and loves Bloomingdale's. People still want to shop at Bloomingdale's. But then there's this thing called the Bloomingdale's balance sheet or the parent company, Federated's balance sheet, which has got too much debt and it can't pay its debt. So they become due. So we have to like solve the problem of the balance sheet, but the business can keep operating and hopefully nobody will know that it's in bankruptcy. Theoretically, FTX US is solvent and there's a business there and maybe people just want to be associated with it so they can get their money out of it. I don't know whatever it is, but it's not surprising that John Ray would consider every possibility here, including restarting FTX US, assuming there's a business that people actually want to engage with to try to increase the enterprise value of this bankrupt estate so that he can try to maximize the recovery for our poor friends, the creditors and the customers and the equity investors who've probably lost all their money to maximize their return uh, that they could possibly get out of this thing. How would that work if Ray wanted to proceed? He would get permission to operate the company going forward so that that money that's generated by restarting the business is able to be returned to the creditors? Well, I haven't looked at like the first day orders, but generally, you know, it's assumed that the business is going to keep operating unless it's being liquidated. You know, this isn't a chapter seven liquidation, it's a chapter 11, which means that the businesses can keep operating while they solve the creditor problems. I haven't like studied those first day orders. I don't know whether for some reason FTX US was shut down and aimed for liquidation or whether he can just, it, it was not shut down and he just hasn't chosen to operate it as the CEO while it was, you know, potential was there for it to continue operating. So let's just assume that they are a debtor in possession and they can continue operating it if there's actually a business there to operate. So uh, what would happen is that 
the business would operate, generate, hopefully, profits, uh, and might even be something to reorganize around. Like if it's a profitable business, uh, then recoveries can be apportioned to creditors, customers, uh, potentially the equity investors, based on the valuation of that operating business. And if it's operating well enough, you know, even while everything else gets liquidated, like FTX International gets liquidated and Alameda gets liquidated, and, and all that will go into sort of this pot, which is called, you know, the debtor's estate. And there might be cash from the sale of whatever crap FTX bought at Alameda. You know, if they sell the Robinhood shares, then that $450 million, you know, goes into the pot. And so at some point, usually the debtor will have an exclusive period in which to file a plan of reorganization. Uh, and I'm sure that, I, again, I'm sure that's something like, you know, six to nine months or a year, whatever it is, and that can be extended. So over time, the estate will liquidate some assets, will operate a business, and cash flow will be generated. Debt is no longer, you no longer have to pay interest on the debt. You no longer have to return money to customers, except maybe in the ordinary course of business may not have to, you don't have to pay vendors right now. You don't have, certainly don't have to pay equity back or the preferreds. And so all of this will go into, you know, a pot. And at some point, the debtor will propose a plan of reorganization. And that plan of reorganization will distribute the, uh, you know, assets of the estate, which will be comprised of cash that has been accumulated. And, you know, there might be some debt that the operating business can service. And then there'll be new equity, assuming he's reorganized around, say, FTX US, uh, which actually could come out of bankruptcy and be an operating and viable company, especially since, as SBF says, it you know should never have been in bankruptcy in the first place because it's viable and solvent. Well, that remains to be seen. So creditors, you know, will probably be given a combination a bullion base of cash, debt, and equity, and uh, that'll add up to whatever, 50 cents on the dollar for what they're really owed, and then that'll be what they get, and hopefully they'll go on with their life and, you know, make something of the equity or, or you know, live with the fact that they are lucky to get 50 cents on the dollar back. Yeah, to your last point, it seems like the big mystery here is which parts of this business are still in good shape and what's broken beyond repair. Because as you just mentioned, Bill, Sam Bankman-Fried has been saying repeatedly that he believes that FTX International may have been insolvent, but FTX US never was, and that his balance sheet was essentially miscalculated. I'm curious what you make of those claims specifically. I mean, this is, this is coming from a guy who is literally accused of fudging his numbers, mislabeling accounts, misleading investors and customers. Now he's saying that actually the forensic accountants have gotten it wrong and that this company is totally viable. Are John Ray's recent comments sort of a validation of his position? No, no. SBF is uh, often fantasy land. Look, I, I don't think there's been a, a CEO of a financial services company or a financial company that went into bankruptcy who didn't argue, oh, if we only had more time, uh, if we didn't have to mark down... Uh, these assets to market, if we didn't uh, have to 
uh, liquidate our inventory if only our creditors uh, would give us more money. You know, like SBF says, oh, well, we were about to get $4 billion of new equity into FTX. Uh, you know, if, if we just had more time, if the rules weren't the rules, if the markets weren't the markets, if people hadn't lost confidence uh, in us, if people didn't want their money back, we'd be totally solvent. If the world were the way it was when I had fictionalized it, then we'd be in great shape. Okay, well, that's different than reality. And if you are operating in the real world, then you, you know the reason you went bankrupt, Sam, is because there was a run on the bank, on your quote-unquote bank, on your exchange. People wanted their money back, and you couldn't give it to them because you had siphoned it off and spent it on real estate in the Bahamas, beanbags, uh, all sorts of crazy investments at Alameda, and you couldn't give them what you said you would be able to give them. What you told Laura Goldman, you know, in uh, SBF Chronicle 2, uh, that, that you would protect your customers, and you didn't do it. You did quite the opposite. You, you allegedly stole from your customers. So who knows, okay, uh, whether FTX U.S. is solvent or not. I, I certainly don't. And the fact that SBF says it is uh, has no bearing on whether it is or it isn't. You know, who knows how all these businesses were all interconnected. Again, I, I keep writing this and saying this. I, I think we need to have an examiner come in here like there was in Lehman and figure out all the crazy things that went on here and, and lay it all out in black and white so that we can all begin to understand what really happened here. Uh, Sam Bankman-Fried saying, you know, FTX is solvent. FTX US was solvent is beyond ridiculous, not even remotely credible, and no one should rely on it. Well, it sort of seems like John Ray is living in a fantasy land, too, if he thinks that he can restart this company. No, I no, mean, no, no, totally different. Well, this isn't. it's not like when they took Tylen off the shelves or when you have a, a car recall. Like you said, there's a, there's a huge, huge trust issue here. I mean, they could restart the company, sure, but are they ever going to um, be able to get enough customers back to make it a profitable business? Well, I mean, that that remains to be seen. But if you, you know, he, he would know, right? He would know if there are actually customers who want to trade cryptocurrencies on this exchange. He, he would know. I'm sure he's heard from customers. And, and maybe they're legitimate customers. And maybe it's actually, maybe there are people who are actually working there who are legitimate and honest and just want to do their jobs trading cryptocurrencies. I, I assume he knows that by now. And if he thinks it's viable and there's like enough capital to have people trade on the exchange and enough customers who actually want to, then it could be viable. I mean, you know, Coinbase I, remains quote unquote viable, right? I mean, again, I, I don't understand basically why people would invest in cryptocurrencies to begin with, right? Especially at this point. But obviously people are. Bitcoin has recovered from like 19,000 of Bitcoin to 23,000 of Bitcoin. So, I mean, people are out there trading it. I assume people are trading Ethereum and Solana and whatever the top five viable uh, cryptocurrencies are now. And I'm sure the other 2,000 are going to go down the tubes uh, as they should never have existed to begin with. Not sure the other five should exist to begin with, but okay, they do, and they do seem to have survived this purge. And so, you know, it could be that this is actually 
a viable uh, business uh, now or might be viable and is something worth trying to operate and then reorganize around. But that's completely different than Sam Bankman-Fried saying it was viable before being forced to go into bankruptcy. Maybe, maybe. We will see. Yeah. Bill, as we're fond of saying on this program, this is not investment advice. <laughs> just just two guys talking. Bill, thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.